So magic mushrooms containing psilocybin have been used for centuries by various cultures for both religious and spiritual reasons. What does it mean to you and what do you need to know about this? We're going to talk about this right now with our special guest. Hey, welcome. Dr. Dave here, Microdose You. I really appreciate you being with me today. And I've got a guest here with me today. I've got Bridger Jensen, and Bridger is the founder of UtahMushroomTherapy.org, MentalGurus.com, and many more. And he's a master's level psychoanalyst. And I'm here with Bridger right now, and we've got a lot to talk about. Welcome, Bridger. How's it going today? It's been going great, and yeah, I'm having a good day. Before we even get into the episode today, we're going to talk a lot about um, the legality of microdosing or, or macrodosing or just using psilocybin. We're in Utah, and Breacher is doing a lot of um, good things here in Utah. But wherever you are um, in the country or in the world, it really doesn't matter because this is absolutely going to pertain to you. Um, so, Breacher, um, tell like, how did you get started? Tell me a little bit about yourself and, and how, how are you involved in, the, in this whole um, mushroom psilocybin type thing? Well, okay. First of all, I, I, I know the research really well. That, that's the thing I claim to be an, an expert in. And um, as my practice with psychoanalysis and my practice when, when I was a therapist, I just continued to see the benefits of psilocybin. And I looked really, I got deep into the research with John Hopkins and what's coming out of Harvard. It's, it's ridiculous that we have been ignoring this for so long or it's almost it's honestly ridiculous that it was ever made illegal or that the research wasn't um happening for the last 30 years regardless where we are now this is the most exciting time i think it's the most exciting time mental health has had since the early uh psychoanalysts or the early behaviorists or the early humanists when they would have these great debates between humanism psychoanalysis and behaviorism I think this is the most exciting time for all of the social sciences. I, I totally agree with you, but um, let's back up even more. So you've got, so you see clients or patients. You've been doing this for how long? Oh, I'm so, talking about even before, even before the before the psilocybin. How long have you been seeing clients or patients? Well, before I founded UtahMushroomTherapy.org, um, I I started when I was 21 in survival therapy kind of camps in Utah. I was really excited. If you would have asked me when I was 17 what I wanted to do when I grew up, I'd say I want to be a wilderness therapist. I wanted to do therapy in the wilderness. And so when I was 21, I got my first job doing that. It's essentially teaching survival skills to youth, right? So I'd take them out. People send from all over their country, if, if you don't know, people send children to Utah. It's one of the two big places in the nation for uh, inpatient adolescent and family therapy. First of all, what, yeah. why, why is that? Why are people sending people from all over the country to What is it about Utah? I mean, there's a big history, and I, I wrote a white paper once on the history of, of wilderness therapy in Utah. But essentially in the 70s, my, my father, um, Larry Jensen, was a psychologist at BYU, and, my, uh, and my, uh, his friend, Larry Olson, who was a survivalist teaching survival classes, and they started taking kids that were not doing well in college and sending them on the survival trip. 
and survival therapy was born. And essentially these kids that weren't doing well started doing well in college after doing one semester of a survival trip. And so it was a 16 week classic course. So that they did research together and uh, this was before I was born, um, but they did research together and this industry was born and some people don't like it called an industry, but it is an industry. It actually, uh, statistically, it's, it's shown to bring more money to Utah than the ski slopes. It's a big industry in Utah. So yeah, so I started there and, and in the end, I wanted to leave the whole industry because I found something greater. Mostly what I, uh, that got me out of the field or that drew me out of the field was, you know, when, when I was, a, when I was a, in my 20s, I was excited to work with youth and I still love that path and I think it's a great career, but it's really the promise of psilocybin therapy and the promise of the research in psychedelics right now that has got me excited and that made me say, okay. And, and also when I was younger, I liked working with younger people, but as I've grown to be in my midlife and gone through the life experiences I've had, I'm more qualified to work with people at my own age and a, a broader spectrum. And I, I can tell you there's a big difference between working with somebody that wants to come in that wants change in their life, that is dying to make those changes that you're offering, and, and somebody that is forced into treatment by the court or by their parents or um, otherwise pressured to be there. It's, it, the difference is profound. So, Richard, let's segue into like more what, what you're doing now and, and what, you believe, what you believe works better than this. Well, you know... I don't want to throw all those good programs under the bus, but I, I do I do feel like it just wasn't my jam by the time I got to my mid-30s. And I went through this time where I, I started to think I wasn't a great therapist, or maybe I wasn't cut out for this, or, or may, you know, I had doubts in my head for a couple, for a few years in my mid-30s, going through a, basically a midlife crisis, maybe a little early for a midlife crisis, but certainly that's what it was. And, and I found the promise and the, the research going into um, the psychedelic models, the psych the, the, and specifically with psilocybin has become an area of expertise of mine. And so that is, that is where I started um, outside of my background with marriage and family therapy and, and children um, is the the psychedelic, I, I almost want to say the psychedelic arts, because in the, in the research with John Hopkins and the um, various experiments that they have done, and experiment sounds like such a cold word for the promising research coming out of this, because what they have discovered is that you cannot separate the spiritual from the practice with psychedelics. And so these researchers were not necessarily looking for that, but they would have people come out. This was true for DMT too. They come out of the research having the most spiritual experience of their entire life and consistently between different patients reporting that having not spoken with one another or learned about it beforehand. So they, they could not separate the spiritual from the science. This is one of the few areas it's so exciting where science and religion and science and spirituality are, are one, that it, it is pointing through the same direction. The, the, the more therapeutic, cathartic, and healthy it is for an individual to participate in psychedelics, 
um, the, the more spiritual it was, the more profound of a journey. And that's the amazing thing in the research. You look at, I'm sorry, I've got run through one more person, Mary, Roland Griffiths and Mary Cosimano, these researchers out of John Hopkins, they emphasize that it, it's actually the love and the, is the unifying principle behind everything. And so this, the patients will come back having felt this profound sense of love and harmony and oneness, the singularism of the event, um, united all things and in, in their minds and in their hearts. And that is the, that is the facilitating change. That is what helped people change. People that actually go on their very first psychedelic journey. And I'm not talking about a microdose. I'm talking about, you know, a, a large, a much larger dose. They frequently come back and say, this was the most significant event that oh, ever took yeah. place in my entire life. And That's these could right. be even older people. And they say, this is, this is the most significant event ever. That's right. One large journey of psychedelics. That, that's right. So, so they would, it was, if I remember the research right, 50% ranked it as the top spiritual experience of their entire life. And then 30 more percent said it was in the top three, meaning akin to closure over the death of a parent, a child, uh, or their own marriage or the birth of their own children that this this ranked in the top life experiences they have at all and and by a large margin the most spiritual and so that that is remarkable and th these were people from all over the board these weren't just like people that didn't have spiritual experiences anyway these were religious practitioners these were heartfelt people these were oftentimes a lot of them were cancer patients with terminal illnesses um, this, this was a group of people that already knew what life had to offer and what spiritual experiences are out there. And they ranked them in the top, uh, experiences of their life. It, it, can I throw out one other really exciting piece? Okay. So, so in the research, you, you can look back through human history and you cannot find anything that changes. Uh, you, you can find like alcohol will change your inhibitions, right? Or you can find uh, marijuana will affect certain parts of your brain. But you cannot find anything that will affect and increase your intelligence. And you cannot find any medication or herb or anything out there that will change your base traits. The base traits being your big five personality traits like your openness your conscientiousness, your introversion or extroversion, your agreeableness versus disagreeableness, or, or basically your survival emotions, like your happiness and your sadness. It's very hard to mm. affect the base yeah. rate of these things. The psilocybin in one, arguably two rounds, because you kind of need a titration round, but in, in just a few doses of psilocybin, permanently increase your creativity and openness and they may and people maintain those gains at 12 and 24 month follow-ups and not by a small margin they increase them by a full standard deviation on average meaning people are permanently more creative and more open with others uh, more tolerant and compassionate and empathetic to others permanently after this that is remarkable that that if we could if we could change the world if we could do one thing to change the world it would be and to make this more a more peaceful place, it would be to increase the openness and the love that we have for one another 
permanently. That would that would be a remarkable game changer. How do right we get there. this in the hands of some of these brutal dictators that are just screwing up the entire planet? Can we can we get them some doses and uh, can we bring them to Utah maybe? <laughs> I w- I won't. If they will agree, I will agree. Well, let me say the reason I found it, and if you're listening, go to utahmushroomtherapy.org. I have. First of all, founded this to give more people the opportunity to participate in this um, in, in this experience. No matter where you are in this country or even in the world, yeah. um, Bridger, is it okay to say that it's it, even though it's a Utah uh, site, it's, it's going to help really anybody that goes there. It doesn't really matter where you are. It'll help us here in Utah, but it'll it'll, it'll teach and help anybody else. Is, is that right? That is correct. And so, first of all. Um, Utah Mushroom Therapy, I founded for a very specific targeted goal, and that was to petition for it to be legalized in Utah, which, by the way, today, like as I'm making this, or tomorrow, they are making, or they are numbering the bill that I, <laughs> I just hope this passes. And so if you can go there and sign this petition, awesome. But if you're listening to this months from now, Check up on how this went and how we did because we might still need your support. People from in and out of the state are welcome to support. And then also, if if you'd like to go and see some national resources, even if you're listening to this later, I'm I'm building another website. I won't want to announce the name yet because it's not out. But I will have a website uh, that you can link to from utahmushroomtherapy.org that will tell you all of the therapy resources and the classes and people that are certified in this. So um, definitely go check out utahmushroomtherapy.org. Um, yeah, we, and we get many of yeah. our listens within the first couple of weeks anyway, so if you're listening to this now and Great. it's recent, go to go to utahmushroomtherapy.org, and it'll take you literally like 15 seconds to, to fill out this little petition, and it'll really help us here, and all, but also um, nationally, it'll, it'll help, in, in some way it'll help people all over the country. The big the big deal today, and the reason I'm on today, is, is to talk about its success already. So it when we started the petition... Um, there was no plan to introduce the bill or we didn't have any sponsors. And now not only is there a bill, thank you um, to the Utah Patients Coalition and to um, a number of other organizations. I don't, too many to name actually. We've made a coalition of people that supported the petition. Um, Divine Assembly supported the petition. Uh, and then also Libertas was the, the people that drafted the petition. And if there are donors or people listening that I don't even know about right now, thank you so much. Too many didn't mention, but the bottom line is the petition uh, that, that we made was successful. We got thousands and thousands of signatures, and we are now turning it into um, the sponsor of the bill, who I am not sure if I'm allowed to say quite yet, but the sponsor of the bill will be uh, publicized and, and reported on today or tomorrow, and let's pass it. We also have, and I suppose I can say this, we also have the, the support of the, the minority leader and the majority leader, meaning with both the minority and the majority leader supporting this bill, that is what has been reported to me, it will almost certainly pass. Um, I have helped uh, create sections of this bill and they invited me to write it. And so I've gotten to help with the training sections and with the uh, religious exemption part section to make sure that it's consistent with federally protected religious rights and protects indigenous people and 
uh, I also got to I just contribute, well, I feel like a large amount to this bill. I'm really thankful to that. And also to the task force that wrote the report. So this is, this is a big project. It's been going on a long time and it's been amazing to see this happen and to watch this happen. This is the time like this, this might happen in the next six weeks in Utah. People said this was too conservative of a state to do it in. And the truth is, while we're a very conservative state, we're also a very compassionate state. And so the, the, the amazing thing is, is that it's something that people get behind because it's for patient use. Now, I want to be so clear on this. This is, this is not the time right now. And I am not, this, this particular bill is not advocating for full legalization of psilocybin to be decriminalized in everywhere without regulation. This bill is specific and targeted for, well, for a conservative state where we have compassionate use of psilocybin and for clinical uses. So this bill legalizes it for clinical and religious purposes um, under supervision from licensed professionals that have extra training in how to handle this. And so it's so exciting. Um, clinicians will be able to do this all over the state. Explain to me exactly what, when you say religious exemption, mm -hmm. um, tell me a little bit about what you mean by that. Well, oh, there's a long history behind this, but America has religious freedom. It's what we're founded on, just like some of the good things in the Constitution that people like and, and some of the things we like to argue about our interpretation of the Constitution, right? But religious freedom is a huge part of it. And so um, for a while it was made illegal. But people fought back in the 70s and 80s and, and won all the way up to the Supreme Court and were found that so long as they are practicing with, in sincerity and as a necessary part of the religion and doing so safely, that those, if those three things were in place, uh, even Schedule One substances that, that were... Uh, they would be able to so they would be able to use like for example native american tribes use peyote and that is common and it's okay and it's part of a legitimate religion um psilocybin has a huge history and so does marijuana a huge history of religious and spiritual use and so um in 1993 um the uh, in 1993 united states federal government found uh passed a new act and it is called the freedom of Re religion restoration act of 1993 and this made it legal for sincere net i'm going to say it over and over and over because these are the three things and steve urquhart by the way was the one who taught me this but the the three things are to be practicing in sincerity to be practicing safely and to be and that it is a necessary part of your practice. So if the Catholic Church came out tomorrow and said, "Hey, we think psilocybin should be in all of our sacraments every Sunday," the 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 government might say, "Well, no, that is that is something you have done without for 2000 years, and unless God told the pope and it comes down from the top to bottom, unless suddenly this is a change that you guys that the your religion supports, it is not a necessary practice of the religion." Does that make sense? And so it's safe, necessary, and sincere. And so sincerity is, you, they, you can't be using it as a loophole. And so some people will come to religious practitioners and be like, oh, okay, wink, wink, you're using religion as a, as a loophole to do what you want to do. 
And, and the answer is no. If, if you're using it as a loophole, you are not sincere. And so I always am sure to tell people to use it re with religious exemption and sincerity or, or to correct people that, that say otherwise. And the, the last thing is safely. You, you have to use it safely. And there needs to be some screening process. I think children should not be exposed to it. It's just not time for them. Sorry if you're listening and you're like, but microdosing saved my child or something. And, and I, I can't argue with your story. Um, but for me and for what I advocate for, it's not something that I want to put in the hands of every child right now. Um, and what is your age cutoff usually? What do you consider If you're using safe? it for psychotherapeutic purposes, um, it, I wouldn't work with anybody under 18 mm -hmm. um, and coach them through that. But um, looking at this, I, I definitely I definitely see the benefits. And, and in fact, oh, I, I'm going to insult some people right now, but I, I generally feel like it is more effective on people older than 25. I think that it's, it's a therapy or a treatment that um, is sometimes lost to people without enough experience to know how to utilize it. Is it also because um, when you're younger, you know, 18 or young, your brain is still is still mm -hmm. forming and growing. And, and yeah. uh, sure. But psilocybin truly rewires yeah. the brain as opposed to alcohol, you know, masking things and, and making you a little less inhibited to do things and, you know, cannabis making you feel better, maybe taking some pain away. But those things don't really rewire. They don't re re rewire the, the whole neural network or anything like that um no they, no they don't um i do think okay so for me my first experience with anything uh in an altered state was with alcohol when i was 32 i had never smoked or never drank it was my 32nd birthday and i was at a conference and my colleagues all ordered shots and they said i know you're you know bridger doesn't drink and i go actually Hand me over. I go. I ordered sake, and they're like, Are you oh, "Sake? You started with yeah, sake. I, I Good for you." The first thing I drank. Come by. So I ordered a sake and got started. And that night I got drunk. I don't think as as drunk as I've ever been, but it was it was the first night I ever danced. And so he, here's the fun thing: is people. First of all, I do think alcohol is overall bad. I don't think it's great. For I agree. I totally society. agree. Yeah, I agree. I would also say. For me and some others, it was part of breaking free, and it was absolutely liberating. It absolutely rewired my brain. Like, without a doubt, new neural pathways were established in just breaking free of the constructs I had been taught. And so that was, that was a liberating experience for me, and a spiritual one, and an empowering one. However, it's not for everybody, and, and in fact... In subsequent experiences, I've had great experiences with alcohol on occasion, but the truth is, I don't need it in my life anymore. I don't, I don't need alcohol to have a good time. I, don't, I, I would say it was a spiritual experience for me coming out of my childhood as a 32-year-old um, experiencing that. You were born and raised in the LDS community yeah, and LDS sure. you it was prohibited in your, in your mm -hmm. religion. So I guess, I, I guess there was a point where you just said, uh, the heck with all this. I'm I'm going to drink alcohol. Um, yeah, it 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 was so. I had left the LDS Church when I was in my heart when I was 25. It was way before it was popular to leave, before mass resignations and marches on the on the temple, right? But this like 
I left and it really hurt my marriage and it hurt and I, I thought I was giving up part of my future. I didn't know anybody and it's funny because we, we forget but I was raised we forget how indoctrinated and entrenched we sometimes were before we left um, and how that continues to affect us. But if you look back, if I look back, I didn't know anybody that was leaving. I was not influenced by like people, people said, Oh, are you talking to somebody? Or, um, at the time Mormons would just assume that like something was going wrong. Like people would ask, okay, have you been looking at pornography? And I'm like, no, have you been reading anti-Mormon literature? And I'm like, no. And like, okay. And then they would, so first they would go through a checklist of like, what are you doing wrong that ruined your testimony? And then they would say, well, what have you done wrong? So they'd be like, did you go on a mission? I'm like, yeah. Did you uh, get married in the temple? Yeah. Where'd you go to college? I was like, BYU. And they're like, huh, when you got married in the temple, were you worthy? And I'm like, you know, it, it's, it's like this checklist of things that they wanted to know what I had done wrong to understand why I would lose my testimony. Because the, the time in the community I was in, the, the family systems that I had, the only people that were leaving that had as the upbringing I had were people that couldn't hack the hack it with the rules or could, or had mental health issues or like just couldn't keep up with mm -hmm. it. We're falling through the cracks. But I have seen since that time in the last 17 years, just the whole house of cards start to fall apart. And, um, they've had to change the story and the narrative and their strategy in retaining members. And I am not opposed to the church whatsoever. I am just an advocate of truth and freedom. It's, it's been interesting to watch it down. Anyway, I still, for seven or eight more years, continued to go to church to support the family. I paid tithing. I just was actively not a believer. I didn't wear my garments, though. That was naughty. But the rest of that, I, when, I, when I had my first drink on my 32nd birthday, um, that was life-changing for me. And that started me on the road of, I feel like, real awakening and transcendence and a spiritual path that I had not experienced prior. Um, one that I was told, I suppose, one that I was told would be lead to destruction and bad things. It just not only hasn't, but clearly doesn't. <laughs> so you so. had this, so from, from using alcohol at age 32, you had this incredible life experience that a lot of people talk about the first time they take a journey on psychedelics you had yours with alcohol kind of yeah i suppose <laughs> my I, I i suppose i just don't want to talk about experiences that my, my mo let me be clear my most profound spiritual awakening experiences have certainly been on other psychedelics not on, understood not understood. with alcohol but sure that was the first that broke me free that opened everything up for me to go deeper. And so microdose so, so, you, yeah. so microdose you talks a lot about the microdosing my, my, and I'm sure more broad than that too, but my, my ex great experiences have been in, and, and those that I have had the privilege to observe, let's say, um, have been those macrodosing. And so getting into what is called, you know, the heroic doses or the clinical doses out of John Hopkins. You know, it's, can I mention a few interesting things? John Hopkins research coming out of that, um, that it, it's so funny because when they started, they 
there had been this posse of research for 30 years. There was just absence and gap in the research, and, and the research they had was unreliable and unreplicated and hard to build upon. So they really turned a lot to the um, anecdotal community, which is the scientific way of saying the hippie community or the, the renegade community. And they, they looked and said, okay, well, how much do they say a dose is? And they really looked at what what experiences they had and they said okay what's a heroic dose so they kind of changed heroic dose to clinical dose they changed ego death to ego disillusionment and there's a whole bunch of other parts that they were able to adapt or change according to what they they needed to publish to be completely honest and then also when they were beginning their experiments they were able to orient the right dosages around what the what people like terence mckenna were saying and Paul Stamets and others. So they, to say, you know, they were certainly influenced by this anecdotal community. Really interesting stuff, Richard. And I, I want to say this time has gone much faster than I ever thought. Now, I, if it's okay with you, I'd love to do a future episodes with you as well. There's Absolutely. so I, I've got so many questions I want to continue to ask you. But um, in closing, um, any any last minute thoughts for for today's show? I suppose I want to say if you are listening to this and looking for the right resources. Um, nationally or here in Utah, uh, I am building a place where you can see the resources, where you can see uh, therapists that are certified in psychedelic therapy practices. And so go visit utahmushroomtherapy.org and see what resources are there for you um, and that apply to you. Fantastic. Well, Richard, I, thanks for everything you're doing, and, and good luck with your advocacy. You're, you're just you're doing an incredible job. It's it's a it's an honor to have met you, and and I want to um I want to bring you back and do more episodes because there's like I just said, there's so many questions that come to my mind. We can only talk about so much at one time, but but let's let's do this again if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Uh, hopefully soon. I'd love to. We'll do it anytime. Thanks so much, Bridger. Appreciate your time. Absolutely. Thanks a ton.